You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it's Ollie here. Just to say that the more eagle-eyed among you will have noticed that this month's episode is not titled as a COVID-19 special. Today, I'm talking to my good friend, the producer Kate Canova, about her work in the Broadway space. Obviously, I know coronavirus isn't over, but the truth is, in the last couple of months, not quite enough has changed for me to be able to bring you a whole new hour of content about just that. So instead, we're going back to our original format today of talking with a Broadway business leader about their career, and when there's more to say we'll get back to talking about all things coronavirus and theatre. Until then, please enjoy this month's episode. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, I'm Ollie Southgate, and from the Broadway Podcast Network, this is Putting It Together. We're on the first Friday of each month. We're getting back to talking to Broadway's best business minds about the state of the art and their role in keeping the world's biggest theatre town at the top of the list on this month's show. I realized that I could get that same feeling that I used to get taking that bow, being the person on that stage for that curtain call by giving that experience to other people and being a part of a team that could create that emotion and that atmosphere in a room. Kate Canova talks about the transition from performer to producer and the lessons learned on the other side of the table. It's kind of like how the sausage is made, right? Like all of those little choose your own adventure decisions that kind of happen behind the scenes that are decidedly unsexy, you know, for the most part. But those little things, when they accumulate, can really be kind of the difference between whether or not a show succeeds or fails, you know, from the budget perspective. From a basement production of Annie to Broadway productions of some of the most socially challenging titles of the past decade, we discuss our producing career and the changing shape of Broadway on the other side of coronavirus. So let's find out how Kate Canova puts it all together.
my first ever kind of theatrical experience <laughs> that I ever had was going to see a production of Annie in the basement of a church in Deer Park, Long Island. It was called St. Cyril and Methodius for you Suffolk County folks out there. But my cousin Kara was one of the orphans in a production of Annie. And I think she may have played Pepper. And I remember sitting there in the dark on a folding chair in that basement thinking to myself, um, I can do that. And I can probably do that way better than all these other kids. <laughs> Why am I not in this production of Annie? Granted, I think maybe we were like six or seven. So my competitive nature kicked in even then. And then my first Broadway experience, actually, my brother and my mom and myself, we went to go see Starlight Express. That was my first Broadway show. Oh my God. When was that? 19... (laughs) (laughs) Whenever Starlight Express... You will find that if you are looking for an interior viewee who is encyclopedic about dates, etc., I will disappoint you greatly. (laughs) Whenever Starlight Express was on Broadway. So I guess the very late 80s or or early 90s. It must have been the late 80s. So not so much like a theatrical family or anything. They just wanted to like get the energy pounded out of you. (laughs) I don't come from a theatrical family. I come from a family who appreciates deeply the arts and what they have to offer. And, you know, growing up, you know, just a stone's throw from New York City, you know, my parents always, and I was very lucky to be brought up this way, but my parents always made sure that all of us kids had you know, the opportunity to be exposed to that kind of stuff. We went to the theater, we went to the museums. My parents' approach was always like, if you treat your kids like little adults, they'll behave like little adults. So we were like bizarrely well-behaved. So I was totally, as you can imagine, I was totally that kid who at six years old, you could take to the New York City Ballet in my little like velvet pinafore and my white patent leather Mary Janes. And I would be <laughs> like just a perfect little angel and totally like absorbed in the experience. So then at what point did you start thinking about the business side of it and producing and like, what was that like transition moment period, whatever it was? So I think there are many produ- producers out there um, who will tell you they kind of got their start as an actor, or they started on stage somehow, or, or, you know, something, quote, unquote, more creative. And that was very much me. I mean, I was an actor for a very long time um, in New York, and also in Los Angeles. And I actually moved to LA in 1999. And while they definitely have sort of a very spirited theater community there, it's of course, nothing like it is here in New York. And so I really started producing out there, you know, in in the early 2000s, really just as an opportunity to give myself and my fellow actor friends performance opportunities, because there really wasn't a ton. Um, You know, if you didn't want to be going out on auditions for commercials and soap operas, and you know, all that other Hollywood stuff, there wasn't like an overabundance of opportunities for young college age theater actors. So, you know, my girlfriends and I basically just got together and just started making our own shows so that we would have shows to do. Right. So that was like in the early 2000s. And then I moved back here to New York at the very end of 2006. I did continue to perform and produce through that whole time. And I did like when I came back to New York, I was working on a feature film, a, a few things like that. But a few things happened. (laughs) 
a few things happened that made it abundantly clear that perhaps it was time for me to let the performative side of my career go. The first thing that happened is, unfortunately, I suffered a really serious and permanent vocal cord injury. I really could no longer sing. I certainly could not handle eight shows a week. And it just sort of was time for me to kind of give up the ghost on that side. Um, I will say that the doctor who fixed Adele's vocal cords fixed mine first. So I will just say you're welcome for that. Oh my God. Yes. I mean, he has very famous clients and and I'm going to give you a sidebar story really quickly, but this doctor is a wonderful doctor. He's a guy by the name of Dr. Steven Zytels and he runs um, the, the vocal group up at Mass General. And he has many, many famous clients, including the likes of Kathleen Turner and Adele. But one of his most famous clients is Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, who, you know, if you listen to some basically like drank a fifth of Jack and smoked a pack of cigarettes every single day for like 50 years. And when I went to go see Dr. Zytels, he actually told me that my vocal cords were in worse shape (laughs) than Steven Tyler's. (laughs) I don't know if that's like my greatest claim to fame or like my biggest abject failure, but there you are. So that was sort of the first thing is that I just, you know, vocally couldn't really sustain the career that I had always wanted to have. But the other reason, and maybe even the more important reason, is that over the last, you know, nearly 30 years, I've had such a great fortune and blessing to be able to work with some really incredibly talented writers, actors, singers, dancers, creators, such an extraordinarily talented group of people that it became very clear to me that I was not playing on the same level. And it's not that I wasn't good. And it's not that I didn't book jobs. Like I would go on auditions and book jobs. You know, I would go in for callbacks and I would get roles. It wasn't really about that. It's not that I didn't work. It's not that I didn't book stuff. I just looked around the room and said, on my best day, I've never been half as good as any of these people. And I began to realize that the talent that I really have, like the thing that I'm really good at is seeing the talent in other people and figuring out how to piece them together like a puzzle that makes a really beautiful kind of picture at the end. Like that's the thing that I'm best at. Do you still feel that way now about your performing abilities or what do you think it was like a a sort of insecurity of you thing because I know I've certainly went through a similar process let me put it this way when I graduated high school you know they say in 10 years time or like at the 10-year reunion here's where I'm gonna be and I was that girl who was like by the time I come back here 10 years from now I'm gonna totally be an EGOT (laughs) (laughs) okay great you know what I mean and it's you know and I'm a very practical person. Like, I'm not going to lie and say, oh, my God, I was kidding myself. I was terrible. I basically was like a big fish in a small pond. Like, that's that's not really true. I mean, I started my Broadway career in 1993. So I have now been part of the Broadway community for, you know, 27 going on 28 years. But it doesn't mean that I'm not realistic. And when you look around the room and you see true pure talent. For me, that's church. Being in the room with people who are just on that level and who bring that grace and that work ethic and that talent forward, that's church for me. That's really where I want to be. And, you know, the first time that I produced something really big that I wasn't on stage for, that night, that first night when it was time for the curtain call, I was looking up at the stage at all of these people that I just loved so desperately. And I was looking around this house where every seat was filled and every person was on their feet. And I'm standing in the back of this house 
I realized that I could get that same feeling that I used to get taking that bow, being the person on that stage for that curtain call by giving that experience to other people and being a part of a team that could create that emotion and that atmosphere in a room. Right. And what was that? What was the first thing that you describe as your first major producing credit? I mean, I don't know that I would necessarily qualify it as a, as a major producing credit. Um, but for me, it was a big deal at the time. Um, but it was like a one night only benefit. Um, it happened in 2009. Um, and it was a one night only benefit that went up at uh, New World Stages, actually. It was a it was a breakthrough moment for me. <laughs> right. And then so then talk me through your producing career from uh, then up until now, what have been kind of the major milestones? So my first Broadway producing credit was the original Broadway production of the Scottsboro Boys. Every member of society celebrates our notoriety. Step right up and meet the Scottsboro One of the most gorgeous and gutting and important pieces of theater that's ever been written and put together. And that was in 2010. And it was a really incredible experience and learning experience because I really didn't know how much I didn't know. Until I joined that team. Right. I mean, I'd been around Broadway for, you know, what felt like a hundred years, but I'd never been on that side of it. Just to go back for a second, you've talked about the sort of 17 years before the Scotch Boys a couple of times. What were your roles mostly in the Broadway space up until that point? Let's just say I made my Broadway debut in 1993 as a member of the cast of the revival of Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat starring soap opera star Michael Damien from The Young and the Restless. I'm sorry, on on Broadway? Yes. Okay, what? (laughs) Yeah, I like literally almost never talk about it. I never really tell anybody what it was. And I think it's like decidedly ungoogleable. I'm not embarrassed about it, but I don't know why I have such a hard time talking about it. And it's really funny because very recently, like at the beginning of this year, I was having a meeting with Carl White, who you probably know over at Martian Entertainment. And he said to me, I don't know why you have such a weird hang up about this part of your life. He's like, it's an incredible thing. You know, you've been part of this community for almost 30 years. Like what, what is wrong with you? And I was like, honestly, I don't know. It's just like a weird thing. <laughs> Until you were producing, there were some acting gigs in childhood. Did you ever do anything on the middle level? Were you ever in a GM office, an agency, anything like that, that sort of fueled your production urges? No, you know, it really was sort of learning as I went because I had not worked in an agency. I had not worked for a GM. You know, I had always just done like the Hamilton model of producing, you know, young, scrappy and hungry, like you just figure it all out, which, you know, I just think is how a lot of us kind of get that experience. Someone who is a friend to this day sort of saw for Scottsboro in particular that I might feel really um, like a strong connection, not just to the material, but to some of the people who were involved in it. And he was right. 
Um, and I, you know, I, I continue to work with those people, um, you know, even now, you know, there was uh, this little thing that happened many years ago, you may remember, uh, when like the whole market crashed, and we had that little like recession thing. So at the time, you know, my day job, I've always had a day job, because I'm like one of those people who really needs health insurance and like a 401k. That's just like my jam. Yeah. Um, you know, so I've always had a day job. And I was working in sort of management consulting. So when Bear Stearns and Lehman started to go under, um, you know, there was kind of a ripple effect. And, you know, a few months into that whole mess, I kind of got swept into sort of the economic crisis that had hit New York City. And I found myself without a regular office job to go to. And I knew that I had always wanted to go to graduate school, but I had been working since I did that show at 12 years old. And I had never not worked. I'd never had not had a job or two or 10. Um, and so I had always been sort of afraid to apply to graduate school because I didn't know what it was like to not work. And I was a little bit like afraid of that. So I lost my job. I was doing freelance consulting work instead. And so one day I kind of woke up. I had nothing to do that day. I'll never forget it. It was December 14th of 2009. And I was like, I'm not doing anything today. Maybe I'll apply to graduate school. <laughs> right. And I like went on Google and I was like, what graduate schools should I go to? And I stumbled upon this is like so embarrassing. I'm going to sound like such a clown, but I literally stumbled upon the producing program at Columbia and the application due date was literally two weeks away. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll apply to this. And so like, I just put something together and I sent it in. I really had sort of forgotten about it until they came back to me and was like, oh, your application's incomplete. And I was like, what? And it's funny that that happened because all of a sudden it like lit a fire under my ass. And I was like, oh my God, what do you mean my application's incomplete? And all of a sudden I was like, I think I really like want to go back to school. And then I like busted my butt to like try to get everything scrubbed up. For better or worse, I wound up enrolling in that program. I got my MFA at Columbia in their producing and general management program. So I started that program in the fall of 2010 when I joined the producing team at Scottsboro. I would go and learn something in the classroom. And then I literally would like walk right into the marketing meeting and watch it. It all unfold. You talked about joining that producing team and kind of learning, as you say, what you didn't know. By the end of that process, what did you know that you didn't know before? For example, like all of the different collective bargaining agreements and the way that the unions are working together and how you have to work with them as a producer to make things work. Thinking about dynamic pricing, you know, thinking about, you know, what the, the show schedule should be and whether or not we should forego a Wednesday matinee for an extra show on Sunday, you know, that sort of stuff. You know, it, it's kind of like how the sausage is made, right? Like all of those little choose your own adventure decisions that kind of happen behind the scenes that are decidedly unsexy you know, for the most part, but those little things when they accumulate can really be kind of the difference between whether or not a show succeeds or fails, you know, from the budget perspective. Mm -hmm. So how do we choose our media placement based on the time of year, whatever the weather is, like what we imagine the competitive set is going to be doing, who's opening in three weeks, who's doing a box out by, you know, all of that kind of stuff, just thinking about you know, all of those pieces on the chessboard and how to really take that 30,000 foot view and, and look strategically kind of down at, at a piece and learn how to do service to it, not just creatively, but how to support it on the business side to give it the best chance at life. And then let's talk about your other Broadway credits specifically and kind of what each one, how you got involved with each one, what you took away from each one. I want to talk about um, The Anarchist, Patti LuPone, Deborah Winger. 
literally every single experience that you have in the theater, just like every experience that you have in your life, is a lesson. And it is your job as a human being to take away from those experiences the things that will make you better and stronger. And sometimes you have great experiences and sometimes you have experiences that are not great. And sometimes when you have those experiences that are challenging, the things that you learn about what you don't want can sometimes be even more important about the things that you learn about what you do want. What I took away from that particular experience was a list of pitfalls that I was going to commit to avoiding and sort of a set of guiding principles for the kind of person I want to be as a producer. Okay, makes sense. So then after that, if I'm reading things in the correct order, the Scottsboro Boys goes to the UK, to the West End. Yes, yes. And that's where you and I meet. I know! <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the Scottsboro Boys on Broadway was not what one would describe as a commercially successful run, even though it was critically very triumphant. So when you get the call saying, we're going to do it again this time in London. Obviously, it's a very important piece of theatre to a lot of people, yourself included. But what's the thought process about balancing out the risk of what happened last time versus the want to present this very important work again? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are a couple of things. Um, obviously, the the most important piece of that DNA is like your love for the piece. And as you said, how important the work is. I just, I love that show so much. I just love it so, so much. And I just thought it was so important that people see it. There's basically never going to be a time in my life that I can think of where I have an opportunity to bring that show to life and I don't take it. That's just going to be a part, like a permanent part of my DNA. That being said, there are also sort of creative, strategic, commercial considerations that go into making that kind of decision. So when we moved Scottsboro to London, we actually didn't move it into the West End. We went to the Young Vic. So it's a little bit of a different situation. But, you know, the thing is, British audiences and American audiences oftentimes have different sensibilities. And, you know, sometimes they respond to content in, in different ways. There have been shows that have been done in New York that, you know, flop and then are famously successful in the West End and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And there, there are other factors as well. So obviously there is different sensibility. And, you know, I say this a little cheekily, but I do think that British audiences sometimes enjoy content that sort of shines a light on the failings of Americans or American culture or sort of the failed American experiment. And that might be a little unfair, but I don't necessarily think that that makes it untrue. I also think that sometimes British audiences just have a stronger constitution for challenging content, you know, or things that are like a little difficult or a little weird or don't feel as commercial. Sort of counterintuitively, Scottsboro did really well everywhere but Broadway. But there was something about the content and the Broadway audience that just did not fit together. Um, and I think at the time, it just, it was a mirror that they didn't want to look into, that the audience didn't want to look into. I don't think that there was the same hurdle with the audiences in London. And, you know, I think you're overly generous in saying that we had a triumph uh, critically here in, in the States because we didn't really like the Broadway reviews were, were decidedly mixed. But that critical acclaim was unquestionable when we went to London. I mean, they, they were screaming it from the rooftops. The other thing is like, just again, to go back to sort of the nerdy business stuff of it, like the economics of bringing a show to the West End are just more favorable. Right. 
Right. You know, you're not dealing with the same sort of union payment structures and the ticket prices are different and the way that the government participates is different. And actually, we were among the first shows in the UK to take advantage of some of, at the time, what was new um, legislation that had been put in place in terms of tax refunds and rebates and, and, and incentives that they were giving to creative endeavors in order to make it a little bit easier to produce and hopefully to recoup the costs of, of those productions. And it's so funny, actually, that you talk about the conversation now as it relates to the Scottsboro in the whole sort of Black Lives Matter reckoning moment that happened a couple months ago and is still happening, I just thought, wow, like imagine the difference in palatability a show like the Scottsboro Boys would have now, like in this moment. And it's it's so impossible to know, right? Like when the exact right time is going to be culturally for something like that to resonate. I guess there's never like a convenient time to like look the ugly truth in the face, right? And if you think about it, when we did Scottsboro the first time, there was no Trayvon Martin. I mean, obviously there was a Trayvon Martin, but what had happened to Trayvon Martin hadn't happened yet. There was no Trayvon Martin. There was no Michael Brown. There was no Eric Gardner. There was no George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. You know what I mean? Like, And there was, there absolutely was. All of those things were happening. But even 10 years ago, I don't think we lived in that world with that that social media microscope and that 24-hour news cycle and the ability to broadcast blatant acts of racism and injustice. I mean, of course they were happening. They've always been happening. But it wasn't out there now the way that we are being called upon. You know, th- there isn't that, that, that sort of moment of reckoning that's happening now for all of us in the same way. And so I desperately want to believe that if that show were to happen have a life now that it would be received in a totally different way than it was on Broadway initially. I just think that it's it's so of our time. I I, I would desperately love to do it again. I'm going to be the first person to sign up for, for the next production. What will be important, and you know, I certainly don't want it to talk out of school, especially since I should make it clear, I, I have no, you know, a, affiliation to any future production necessarily that's that's gonna that's happening, or nor do I know of anything that's like in the works in terms of a Broadway revival at the moment, you know, but I do think that mistakes were made with the original production. They weren't made out of malintent. Um, they were not malicious, but I do think, you know, if, if the show were to have a life now, it would need to look very differently in terms of the faces in the room. We need to have Black creatives involved in the process. We need Black producers who are leading the charge. And that's not something really that we had um, when we did the show on Broadway the first time, you know, and I, I think that that that's critical um, to, to bring the show back. Yeah. And I mean, that's true of, I guess, all things is the reckoning that the industry as a whole is facing right now. But especially when you're telling such acutely black stories, you want to make sure that balance is addressed. I think at this point, like it's a non-starter. To talk about doing it without that kind of representation. Absolutely. So then the visit um, at the Lyceum, Chita Rivera, Roger how did you end up involved with that? I got involved with that because my very dear, darlingest, most delicious friend, Tom Smeeds, um, said, can you do this show with me? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> 
Um, and I really did. I said, you know, Tom, I, I'm lead developing a brand new musical all on my own. It's a really big undertaking. I feel like I need to be really focused. I've decided to sit the season out and I'm just, I'm not going to co-produce anything on Broadway this season because I really need to focus on my own show. And he was like, I totally, totally get it. And then he was like, okay, except like, I really just need like one more person because I had someone drop out. And like, I just, I have this one spot to fill. And I said, okay, I will make one phone call. And if I can get this person to fill your spot, then I'll do it. But I really, really have to focus on my own show. So if this doesn't work out, you know, I'm I'm sorry, I really can't do it. But I guess I was very convincing on that one phone call because I managed to fill that slot. And that's how I became a co-producer on the visit. Again, I just, I love that show so much. The score is so beautiful. And, you know, to be able to basically go to a masterclass every day with Miss Cheetah Rivera and Roger Reese, may he rest in peace. Like, and then, you know, Tom Nellis once, you know, Roger got sick. The performances in that show were just masterful. Um, you know, I think sort of what's happened is that like, I, I, I seem to be making a career of work that may not necessarily be commercially conventional, but from from a storytelling and social justice perspective, I just think that they're important, and I think I'm kind of okay with that. And that and that was kind of the visit. And 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 the funny thing is, is that when you when you look at what else was happening that season, so much makes sense about why that show, you know, commercially did not do very well. You know, again, critically acclaimed. Um, and Cheetah is just, I mean, could you die? She's like the best ever. I mean, I can't even be like around her because I, you know, I don't really get starstruck, but for some reason I literally get tongue tied around her. You'll remember one of the times I was in the city and we missed each other and I didn't even realize until it was all over was the closing night performance of that yeah. show. Yes. We were, we were both there and we had no idea. Yes. It was announced sort of as a sidebar at the end that Cheetah was really not feeling very well and that she had come back because she desperately wanted to be there for this final performance and the minute they said it i was just like i'm sorry she's she's sick <laughs> I got, oh, yeah. what so uh, when i say masterclass, i am not kidding cheetah had had basically like total laryngitis that entire last week she came out and did that last show she was so on point and so gutting and it's funny because just as much as the experience that i had on the anarchist taught me a lot about how I didn't want to approach things. My experience on the visit was was quite the opposite. It was such a warm and inclusive group. It really felt like a family. Everybody had so much heart for that show and was willing to like bust a hump to do everything they could for it. You always wish your colleagues well. You always want people's shows to be successful you know, sort of no matter what, or at least you should, I, I, I kind of believe in that kind of karma. But, you know, there was another show that was up that season that your friend and mine, uh, another really talented and prolific producer, um, Julie Boardman and I went to go see this other show together. And the two of us sort of sat in the house as people were literally falling all over themselves, like rolling around in the aisles, just in, in hysterics over this, this other show, just raucous insanity in the house. And Julie and I kind of looked at each other and we were like, what is going on? <laughs> like, 
You know, it almost felt like somebody was playing a very cruel joke on us. But, you know, there we were in the house and and the audience was just losing their minds. And I sat there thinking to myself, well, this explains everything. If this is what people want, then it does not surprise me at all that we're not selling tickets for visit. And then along the same lines, you were talking about sort of shows with a theme of social justice, your most recent Broadway credit, Head Over Heels. I love Head Over Heels so much. I love that show. I miss it every day. Earlier, I sort of alluded to the fact that I I probably have sort of the least prolific (laughs) um, career you know, out of all the people that you talk to, I, I I don't tend to work on a lot of stuff. I'm sort of a monogamist, to be honest, when it comes to things. Like, I'm just not that person who has sort of the bandwidth to, to work on a lot of stuff, you know, season in and season out. So I tend to be a little bit more, I don't want to say selective, but singular when I participate in something. Because uh-huh. um, I really give it my all. I'm like one of those people where when I'm on a show, I'm there like every day. I am like putting booties in seats. I'm arranging backstage tours. I'm buying cocktails for people. Like it, like I am there. You know, it's a lot of energy um, and time. Right after the visit, I had a visit from my son, who's now three years old. Um, so I, t- I went on a little bit of like a maternity leave for a couple of years. And I just uh-huh. really kind of sat stuff out as I continued to work behind the scenes on one of the shows that I'm developing now. Um, so I really didn't do anything for a couple of years. And then, um, again, your friend and mine, uh, Julie Boardman, kind of approached me with Head Over Heels. And she had so much heart and love for the show. And um, I didn't really know much about it. And she asked me, I, I mean, I had seen sort of the video of a presentation and she had asked me, she invited me to come to their final rehearsal before the cast was getting ready to go out to the current. And so I went to the rehearsal and I just sat there thinking to myself, like, how joyous, you know, because if you look at the stuff that I had been doing before that, Scottsboro Boys, The Anarchist the visit, like (laughs) talking about light content. And for me, it felt like the backbone of it, the spine, the intention was almost the same, but like the wrapping paper was a little different. Right. Presented in a, in a very different way. And I just, I just thought it was so funny and, and smart. And the cast was so incredibly talented. Can you hear is really good at what she does. And she basically really just sold me on it. And as I spent time, um, I just kind of fell more and more in love with the show. And I kind of just decided that, you know, I was going to 
sort of come back to the community after taking time off to have my son. And that was the show that I wanted to do it with. And so that's what I did. What was that ride for you? Every show is going to have fans and not fans. Like even shows like Hamilton, who, you know, it's like the best thing that's ever happened since sliced bread or, you know, astronaut ice cream or whatever. You know, even Hamilton has its critics. There are people who are going to fall in love with the story that you're telling and people for whom it just isn't the thing. And Head Over Heels was was just like that. But for every one of those people, you know, there were two or three or five for whom Head Over Heels was groundbreaking and life-changing theater. And, you know, just because it was a comedy and just because it was a little kind of off the wall does not mean that it was any less important or effective or differentiating. And, you know, I think we talk so much about representation and how much it matters. And I think more than any other show I've ever worked on in my whole life as a producer or otherwise, I have never seen that, you know, manifest so profoundly as I did with Head Over Heels. There were people who came to that show and literally said, I've never seen somebody like me before. We had a, a, a talk back after a performance one night where a 15-year-old trans boy from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, literally came out to his mother during the talk back. They had literally never met another trans person. They had really never been around another gay person and didn't really have a vocabulary for their experiences. It was an amazing moment to witness, not just to watch a young person find themselves somehow, but to feel so validated that they could turn to their parent in front of a room full of strangers and feel empowered and safe enough to speak their truth for the first time in their life. Right. And also to sort of have been given the toolkit by the show to say that that's me. Yes. But there were also some pretty challenging and stark learnings on that show, um, you know, for me and, and also I think for our cast. I think, you know, something that I think we pride ourselves on as a, a community of theater artists is we are a home for all people. You know, when you're that misfit in middle school, it's the drama club that saves your life. It was shocking to see through the experience of that show how much homophobia and transphobia specifically still exists within our own community. And when the New York Times has to print an apology for purposefully misgendering the first trans person to originate a role in a Broadway show, that's extraordinary. And right. let's, let's be real, that was the second apology that the New York Times had to issue that week. They had written a review just a few days before that for some reason found that the weight of an actress on stage was subject matter that was appropriate to, to refer to. So, you know, when you are putting up a piece of, of theater that is about body positivity and authenticity and finding your way and, you know, gender fluidity and all of these things, and, and you put it out into the world thinking that, you know, at least you'll have that protection from your community and you don't necessarily, I think that, you know, that it, it's kind of shocking and you're, you sort of wonder, you know, how far have we come really? Yeah. I mean, I think that conversation was sort of relit recently, again, to go back to the Black Lives Matter conversations, 
the Broadway community has always sort of represented itself as this all a welcome, you know, Fantasia world, except not really. The Broadway community has been, you know, unequivocally welcoming of, you know, essentially white, cisgender, gay people, and has projected that as like, therefore, that means we're accepting of everybody, didn't you notice? Right. And these kind of reckoning moments, it's unfortunate that they have to happen, but also so important that they do so that these things are addressed. And I think Head Over Heels was a a huge moment for that as well. Yeah. And, you know, I think to your point, which is, I think, a correct one. And believe me, I believe that the reckoning has reached us between the Broadway Advocacy Coalition, ICU White American Theater. There's so much sort of happening now to reframe and refocus and drive accountability and calling things as they are, you know, so that we can undo things um, and do them over the right way. Um, But your point, I think, is a correct one, because I don't think that we necessarily have done enough for our trans brothers and sisters. I don't think that we've necessarily done enough for people of color and women of color in particular. I don't even think we've done enough for mothers who are theater artists. I mean, have you ever tried to breastfeed or pump in a theater somewhere during rehearsal? There are all of these things that just, I think now for the first time, you know, we're really pushing back on it and starting to work through. We've all been apart for the last, you know, six months or going on six months or five. How, what day is it? I'm not sure, Um, you know, but we've basically all been locked down. And, you know, I I need to believe because I'm doing it for myself. I need to believe that our community is spending this time digging in, looking in the mirror, figuring it out, doing the work because we cannot come back to what it was before it's when we talked back in march right at the start of this when you uh very generously spoke on my first coronavirus episode you talked a little bit about that about hopefully this will be a a sea change for kind of the way we go about doing business on broadway and there will be new ways of doing things on the other side of this it sounds like you're still kind of assured that that's that's going to be the the net result of all of this is that still how you feel i'm assured to the extent that I know I'm doing it. Right. I just kind of feel like it has to be so. Like if we want theater to come back, we have to make these changes. We have to. Yeah. Because we can't survive any other way. Every single person, every single theater artist who touches a show to make it come to life is going to have to like we are all going to have to hold hands and come together and figure out how we're going to step forward. We literally, logistically, financially, spiritually, creatively cannot come back from this if we don't figure out how to do it together. And it is clear that this community is just not going to accept doing it the same way as it was before. It's just not going to happen. And you know what? It shouldn't. And it's about accountability. Like it's my responsibility as a producer to put my money where my mouth is. This is so cheesy, but you have to be the change you want to see in the world, right? I signed the accountability pledge with the Broadway Advocacy Coalition. If you go to my website, you can go and read it. I put it right up there so that, you know, the entire world can see what it is that I am willing to be held accountable for. It's my responsibility to live up to that. And I'm doing it. I'm I'm developing two shows right now. And I am working every day to make sure that I am accountable 
to what I promised I would do and that we're, we're building and working and creating together because the storytelling will infinitely be better. The community will infinitely be better. And we have such a responsibility to this world to help it heal because our shit's a disaster. Can I curse on your podcast? Absolutely. <laughs> like, we, like, honestly, like we're kind of a little bit fucked. Yeah. And like art and community and theater, I mean, that's soul. That is the soul of a civilization, right? And if we don't figure out how to fix it and how to make it, then like, how are we ever supposed to fix all of this broken shit? We literally have murder hornets. As a matter of fact, I would be happy to have the murder hornets back. Where are those people? <laughs> I, I let's get back to the murder hornets and like the Saharan like air dust thing that makes the pretty sunsets. Like I would like to get back to that point. Sure. So we, we've talked about your Broadway um, sort of co-producer credits um, and you've, you've spoken a few times in there about the flip side of that, which is the, the developmental work you do as a producer um, and sort of birthing shows in their earliest incarnations. Do you have a preference now having done a decent amount of both? Gosh, I don't, I don't know that I would call it a preference because it's almost like um, telling someone they have to choose between their stepchildren and their biological children. Is that weird? <laughs> I don't no, know. That makes sense. Good, if that's like a good analogy. I mean, it's so it's different. It's different. I mean, here's the thing for me, if I'm going to participate in a show, it is because I have a deep emotional connection to the piece, whether it's something that I'm developing, you know, that I'm sort of in charge of, or if it's as a co-producer on, on something that someone else has had the great foresight and inspiration to bring forward. There's a lot of really amazing things about being in charge of your production and like really getting to bring something to life and sort of fully, you know, manifest it in a 360 degree way. We produce are control freaks and crisis managers. I mean, that's like how we like to to kind of operate. So of course, like I want to find new voices and help bring new art into the world. On the flip side, that also comes with like an enormous amount of responsibility. Um, and it's a little scary. And half the time I'm like, do I even know what I'm doing? Like, should I even be doing this? Am I making the right choice? Am I Am I doing right by my authors, by my investors, by my team? Like, am I am I creating an environment where people feel like they can be their best creative selves? Am I doing service to the work? Am I going to be able to recoup these funds? Like, of course, it's like terrifying, but like the best possible way. Those two types of projects come to you in very different ways. If it's a Broadway thing, as you kind of alluded to before, it's it's usually, you know, someone you know has, has already brought something a certain amount of the way and they call you. With these brand new things that you are truly bringing up from nothing in their earlier stages. How do you find and vet those projects? How do they generally land on your radar in the first place? This is a good question. So sometimes I just get blind submissions. I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, that's not how I find the material that I work on. Right. Also, I'm oh, like, I read everything. So no matter what somebody sends me, I will read it because you just never know when you're going to find that, that thing. Right. Um, but I would say that the 99.9% .9 of the time, that's not how I'm finding the work. What I find happens for me usually is that you know, it's people that I know or I've collaborated with or I've worked with and they have something new that's going on or they know someone and will say something like, you know, I, I have a, a, a friend who's written a wonderful play. I just think you guys would have great chemistry. I would love to introduce you. You know, would you be willing to, to meet them and, and read their work? Like, you know, that that sort of 
happens. Um, I have two projects going on right now that I'm developing. One is has been a rather long journey that was just about to sort of take off as the whole world shut down. So we're sort of reworking timeline for that. But for that particular project, I mean, I went to college with the composer. I mean, I've known him for, I don't know, like 20 years or something crazy. Uh-huh. Um, and he's extraordinarily talented. And I feel very fortunate that, you know, he and, and his lyricist and the book writer kind of trust me with their baby that they've, you know, that they've had for the last 10 years. So that's sort of how that happened. And then, you know, I have another project and it was literally, I'm telling you this, the funny things happen. So my acupuncturist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Okay. So my acupuncturist has an ex who wrote a show, um, a musical, and, you know, had been talking to some producers about potentially like optioning the work. And my acupuncturist said to his ex, you know, before you sign anything with anyone, you have to meet my friend Kate, because I just think that you two will fall in love. And I think she should hear your show. And so we had a coffee in January. And basically, that was it. And now the show is mine ish, you know, so, you know, it's just funny how things work. And I tend to have an instinct about people. And I think people tend to have an instinct about me, because I think you know this about me, like you get what you see, you see what you get with me. (laughs) I'm just, I'm sort of out there. So, and I think people know right away whether or not we're going to click or not click. Yeah. Um, You know, so oftentimes I find that when someone says you should meet Kate or Kate, you should meet this person. It's because they have, you know, the foresight to know that, you know, from a chemistry perspective, there's going to be something there. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Kate Canova of Kate Canova Productions. And you can find out more about Kate's work, both in the Broadway space and as a developmental producer at KateCan.com. That's K-A-T-E-C-A-N.com. You'll also find the Broadway Advocacy Coalition's public accountability pledge there, something that both Kate and I have signed. And I encourage you to do the same on the Broadway for Black Lives Matter website at bwayforblm.com slash pledge. Putting It Together is produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals for the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Euless Pecan, with additional music in this episode from the original cast recordings of The Scottsboro Boys, The Visit, and Head Over Heels. Artwork and editing is by me, Ollie Southgate. You can find me on Twitter, I'm at Ollie Southie, or you can find out more about my work at ollysouthgate.com. In both cases, my name is spelled with an I-E, not a Y. You can also find out more about the network and our other programming at broadwaypodcastnetwork.com, and I'll be back on the first Friday of next month. That's Friday, September 4th. But until then, thanks as always for listening, and goodbye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org, because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 